The sermon text today is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So after hearing that passage, is anyone confused? Well, it's, uh, it's understandable. So uh, let me quote Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, and he, he says it in kind of his own uh, Lutheristic way. He says this, a, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand or explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it until this guy. <laughs> Just kidding. So we're going to move beyond a little bit of the challenging part. Look at baptism, because in this passage, baptism it is clearly seen, it's clearly understood, and it's going to kind of set the table for us to understand what you will participate in, because you are participants in this. You have a role to play in baptisms. You're not just observers kind of watching and getting excited about it. You have a role to play in the development of their souls. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at this passage, particularly 321, and look at it theologically. What does God want us to understand about baptism? That's the first thing. And then, and then draw some practical takeaways, because all good theology should meet itself out in the practice of the church. So I want to bring up three kind of beautiful things about baptism in 321. So the first thing I'll tell you about baptism is that it's a picture of deliverance from judgment. It, it pictures for us the deliverance of judgment. Look with me back at uh, 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, a lot of people get knotted up on this one, now saves you. A lot of people think, well, does baptism actually save? Does it perform some salvific event? In other words, is there something magical about the waters that you have to be baptized? Now, a lot of people have felt this way. In fact, Oftentimes, you'd find nurses would, would be baptizing infants that were dying to make sure that they were baptized so that they might not go to hell. Their intent maybe was right, but their theology was not. When Peter says, does Peter mean that it really saves? I don't think so. You see, because he seems to offset that direction when he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. The act itself is not the significant event. Uh, but he tells us what baptism means by the point of comparison. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, what is he corresponding baptism to? What's the point of comparison? Well, the point of comparison, of course, is in the verse right before ours. And that is what? That is the story of Noah and the ark, right? Most of you know the story. It's the Old Testament in Genesis about how God brought a flood upon the world. In other words, God had, had created all men and women for his glory and for our joy. 
And these men and women, they rebelled against God. They rejected his authority. And so God brought judgment against those who were rebellious to him. He saved a few, we see. And Noah was of those saved. And, and it says that Noah was safely brought through the waters. So what, what Peter's doing, baptism is like deliverance from judgment. In other words, the waters of the flood are like the waters of baptism. So, so it's called a type. It's an image. It's a copy. In other words, Noah's salvation was in anticipation of a future salvation. So just as Noah was safely in the ark in the waters of God, the waters of judgment, so is the Christian safely in Christ coming through the waters of judgment. In other words, Noah fled to the ark for safety, and so the Christian flees to Jesus Christ for safety. Safety from the judgment of God. Now this judgment was born by Christ. For the Christian, his hope is in Christ. This is what makes Christianity unique, is the fact that we are putting all of our hope in Jesus Christ. We're bringing nothing to the table. We're being carried along, as it were, as if Christ is our ark. Now, let me just stop here for a minute. I I do want you to recognize, if you're a Christian here, uh, you have come through those waters. When you see them come out of the water, you're going to see that they have passed out of judgment. They will never face the judgment of God for the wrongs that they have done. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, God still stands as judge. I, I say that with a degree of heaviness because we don't sense the judgment of God in our day-to-day lives. And yet we see it around us, we just don't take time to look. God has given us a history that he has brought judgment upon those who fail to enjoy, worship, revere, honor him. It's a a hard word. I mean, baptism is a celebration. We have a party to celebrate it. I don't want to lose sight of the dark side that God does stand on. as judge overall. So that's the first picture we see, that baptism is a picture of deliverance from judgment. But but secondly, baptism is a picture, really it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. You see that in the second half of verse 21. It's an appeal to God for forgiveness. In other words, the outward act of baptism doesn't do anything, but it pictures for us these baptismal candidates appealing to God to forgive. Now, listen, we know the sting of sin. You know, we sin against God. We sin against our spouses. We feel guilty. We feel that sense of dirtiness or forsakenness. We know that God brings judgment to sin. And so it's appealing to God for this forgiveness. God, wash my soul clean. Bring forgiveness into my life. Wipe the record clean is what we're appealing to in baptism. You know, Peter says in chapter in Acts chapter 2, when he's preaching for the first time, he says uh, that he says um, to be baptized, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So when you see them go into the water, they are visually for you, they're publicly making an appeal. I need to be forgiven. I'm asking God to forgive me. It's a beautiful, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. I think Christians ought to be the most, they're the most honest ones because we have the gospel to be able to say, I haven't done it right. I've sinned through and through. I am a sinner. I need salvation. 
It's a position of great honesty and great humility, of which most people cannot do. They will defend, they'll obfuscate, they'll blame shift, they'll explain why they do what they do that they shouldn't have done. The Christian doesn't need to make up any excuses. We are sinners, and we know that. And that's why we go to Christ, because we need his forgiveness. It's a great point of intellectual and moral honesty when people are being baptized. So it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, clean my conscience, wipe the record clean. But on the other side of that, there's also a pledge being made. In fact, that word appeal is a difficult word to translate. Uh, Some theologians want to translate it as an appeal, as a request. Uh, At least in the verbal form, that's what it means. But but there's another definition for it, uh, as a pledge or a promise. In other words, when they're going into the water, they're not just appealing to God for a clean conscience that he would forgive us, but they're also pledging to God that I will follow you, that I will live after you. So when they're going into the water, they're making a promise. They're saying, you know what, this is the direction I used to live my life, maybe in self-centeredness or self-sufficiency, but now I'm going to live for your glory. By your grace, I'm going to do that. It really, what baptism is, is it's a covenant we're making. We're making a promise to follow God. You know, in Matthew 28, many of you know these verses, Matthew 28, he says to go into the world, right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So when we're being baptized, we're saying we're baptized into the name, and we're being baptized committing that we're going to do everything he has commanded. By your grace, Father, I want to follow how you lead. That's the call that they're making. That's the promise that they're making. So you have this picture of deliverance from judgment. And secondly, you have this idea that it's a pledge. It's an appeal to God for forgiveness and a pledge to live obediently. But then there's one third, there's one more picture here. And that is that it's a picture of the dawning of a new creation. In other words, When these candidates are baptized, it's picturing for us them coming back to life from the dead. In other words, the baptism is the beginning of life anew. Now, the confidence we have that life is being changed, you see it at the end of 321, where he says it's an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. So in other words, the reason we see this as the beginning of life anew is because it's done through the power of Christ. The, The forgiveness that we're appealing to God for, why should he grant it? Is it because we're promising to do better? Is it because we're promising to join a church or to be more ministry-minded? No. No, no, no. The assurance that we have, the basis upon which we can grant forgiveness or tell the candidate that they have been forgiven is that Christ has died for you. You see that in verse 18 at the very beginning of the passage. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We're not bringing ourselves to God. We're not making some public declaration that God's going to somehow honor and say, okay, I'll forgive. No, the forgiveness that is granted to us is based upon the fact that there is a Messiah who has suffered and died 
And he has been our substitute. So all of our sins have been laid upon the shoulders of one who is both perfect but like us. And he suffered so that now we can be forgiven. God is just in punishing the sin, but he's the justifier. He's the forgiver of those with faith in Christ. So, so that, that new life is beginning because of our sins being washed away. The promise that we make to be faithful to him is rooted in through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand. In other words, who of us would dare promise to live obediently for God without his help? In other words, with Jesus at the right hand of God, that power of tomorrow is ours today. He's giving us the power to live different lives. So when I say that baptism is a picture of the dawning of a new day, what I'm saying to you is this, is the blessings of that future life we have with God, those blessings are pulled in some measure to this life right now. So the forgiveness of sins, you are forgiven now. That In God's eyes, for the Christian, he's forgiven now. Your sins have been wiped away. You have been reconciled to God now. It's not going to come on that day. Now you're reconciled to God for the Christian. In other words, he says in Romans 8, he says, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in this life now that can separate you. So, so you're enjoying now a piece of eternal life. You've been given the Spirit of God. You'll have it in full measure when you see him face to face, but, but that, those blessings of tomorrow are now part of today. You, you're smelling the pie. You may not be eating the whole pie, but those blessings are fading back in. Union with Christ. Baptism is a picture of us being married to Christ. We are now wed to him. Our lives are intertwined with his. All these blessings are beginning now for those who have come to faith in Christ as pictured in baptism, that's why it's the beginning of a new day. Really what happens is it's, they're born again. They're born to new life. New life that now is found in Christ. So those are the three pictures here. It's a picture of deliverance from judgment. It is a picture of, of the forgiveness that's being granted. And it's a picture of the beginning of a new life. Now, I, I know some of you here perhaps have not seen a baptism. Perhaps you're only looking at Christianity. This is what a Christian believes. Christian believes that he needs the salvation from deliverance. We see that God is holy. He's righteous. He's a good God. But he is a just God. And we are justifiably guilty before him. And so those whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit, we come to Christ, we seek forgiveness of our sins, that we might be reconciled to God and be adopted as children of God. So that's, the, that's some of the theology behind a baptism. Let me just draw out a couple takeaways and then we'll move to the table uh, number one when you see this baptism just in a little bit i do want you to think that it is repentance and faith made visible so when these when these men and women who have become christians when they repented of their sins and appealed to god for mercy we didn't see that god saw that god knew exactly what happened you get to kind of see it though so when they go down into the water you get to see repentance and faith visualized it's made public. That's why we don't practice private baptisms. A baptism is to be a public event 
for the community of faith. It's not done in the privacy of our home and we're dedicating this little child with water to God. No, no, it's a public declaration. This person has been born again. One New Testament scholar has written much on baptism. He's a Murray. He says, baptism is an overt public act that expresses inward decision and intent since it's performed in the open, not in secret. It becomes, by its nature, a confession of faith and an alliance, uh, allegiance embraced. Another author writes, baptism renders faith visible. It gives the believer, the church, and the world something to look at. In other words, it's identifying them. This one belongs to Christ. Now, I, I would say this, that baptism actually is, is an altar call. It's the Bible's version of an altar call. And many of you have been raised with uh, seeing altar calls where people come forward and commit their lives to Christ. That's what the baptism is. They're going forward. They're committing their lives to Christ. That's why we don't practice altar calls here every week. That's baptism, a public declaration. I am choosing to follow God, and I want to show that and declare that by being immersed in water, coming out of the waters of judgment, saved unto Christ. So it's, so it's a public act. Uh, but secondly, baptism is for all people, at least all those who have committed their lives to Christ. I quoted earlier that Matthew passage, right? Go into the world, making disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The people being made disciples are the ones being baptized. There, there's never a consideration in the entire New Testament for a person to believe in Jesus and not be baptized. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. Well, I think he might have a legitimate reason why he wasn't. And, and, but I think he would have if he wasn't there. Th th there's no consideration of people not being baptized who have faith in Christ. L listen, if baptism is a sign of the covenant, if it's the sign of entrance into God's new society, into a community of faith, that's what all do to enter this community of faith, is to be baptized. Okay, third, baptism demands a moral and intellectual uh, maturity or understanding. In other words, when you look at the text in 321, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. To appeal to God for a good conscience would demand that you understand yourself, that you are a sinner. You understand sin. You understand God's holiness. You understand what conviction of sin is. It demands that you understand the cost of pledging your life to Christ. Even Jesus himself said, hey, don't start building the house until you count the cost. Don't choose to follow me until you count the cost. So there has to be this moral, this intellectual understanding of myself and my own sin. This is why we don't baptize infants. Infants cannot appeal to God for a good conscience. That's not the parents appealing to God for the good conscience of the child. It's the person having to have enough awareness to appeal to God. And this is why we delay baptism for those who are younger. We want to make sure that they understand these things so that we don't baptize prematurely and give them a false degree of assurance. Okay, fourth, a baptism is the church's act. The church is involved with baptism. Listen, many people, I, I think they forget this, we don't baptize ourselves. Nobody baptizes themselves. There's always two parties to a baptism. 
there's the party that needs to be baptized. They've repented of their sins. But there's also the church. The church has a role to play. The church has something to say. The church is the one that's supposed to confirm the work that the person senses. The church is the one not just to confirm it by baptizing them, but by, by helping them, incubating them along, cultivating the life of Christ in them. Listen, salvation is from start to finish. It's God's, right? He who began a good work and you will complete it. But he uses the church to move you from glory to glory. In other words, there is no Christian that is to walk in an individual way. We do it together. We do it together. So, so the church, play, that's, that's why baptism is a corporate act. It's together. See, I think many times we think baptism is like a, it's like a graduation ceremony. I've lived my life and I've come to faith in Jesus and now I'm going to get baptized. It's like the culmination of my life. And I would say, no, no, no. It's the initiation of your life. Baptism isn't simply looking back. Baptism actually is beginning. It's entrance into the church. It's the initiation of a new life in God through Christ. So it's a church's act. The church has a role to play. And then last, I would say, and let me just give these words to kind of orient us to the table. Uh, baptism leads to this table. Baptism leads. So baptism is a sign of the covenant. God has made a covenant. He made this promise back in Jeremiah 31. A new covenant I'll give to you. He's going to write the law upon our hearts. We're going to be able to actually live in light of the law. We're going to live as children of God. That was the promise he made. Baptism is a sign of that entrance into that new covenant. It's done one time. You don't keep getting rebaptized. Let's say you fall and you fall into sin. You may fall hard into sin. You don't get rebaptized. That's what the table's for. The table's the next sign of the covenant. The, the table is the reminder of the covenant that God has made with us and that we've made with God. The, coven, the table actually is to be repeated because we sin in this world. Right now we live, we've been born again for the Christian here. You have been born again into new life in Christ. It will be fully consummated when you see him face to face. But in this life, in the flesh, we still struggle with sin. In fact, John even says in his first letter, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So we know Christian sin. And that's why this table, I often say, is not for the perfect, it's for the penitent. It's for those who recognize their sin. They're coming back to renew their vows to God. When the Christian sins, he doesn't stop being a Christian. Any more than when I sin against Carol, I don't lose my status as her husband. I'm still her husband, but I have sin against her. I need to reconcile and renew the covenant with her. I need to go back and say, listen, I have sinned against you in thought or word or deed, however I've sinned. Please forgive me. I'm committed to our marriage. I want to live in right relationship with you. And then she forgives me. And it's like a renewal of the covenant we made the day we got married. That's what the table's for. The table's for sinners who are saints, who are coming forward. I need this table. And so when you come here and we take a moment or two before the table for you to think over your life, God stands ready to forgive. But there's a place where we confess our sins so that he's faithful, he's just, he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we're experiencing. So the table is a table of a, it's a covenantal renewal. It's reminding us 
this is what I pledged to him back 28 years ago when I committed my life to him, or however many years, maybe two weeks. But, but the table's also a reminder that he has made a covenant with you. He said, I will love you. I've chosen you before the foundations of the world. God's love is not a, he loves me, he loves me not. It's a certain love. It's a sure love. God can't lie. He's not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Oh, God will be faithful to his covenant. And that's the reminder of this table. So let's just take a moment now. And if you're a Christian here, um, you know, we're warned to not come to the table in an unworthy manner. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, to consider, to examine ourselves. Let's take a moment now and, and examine ourselves. Uh, maybe it's a point of gratitude, giving thanks to God for what he's done, or even being reminded of what this table's about, or confessing, perhaps you really got into sin knee-deep, even last night. You need the table if you're a Christian. And you need to repent of those things. Let's take a moment now and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us and then call the elders and servers up and we'll serve the table. Let's just take a moment now in silent reflection. <laughs>